Thanks for joining us for today's message. Here at Temple Baptist, we're a church on a mission, connecting people to Jesus and to one another. Uh, Just the other day, I heard a story of a man and his wife uh, who, when their kids were really young, they had to travel across North America. So they boarded a plane, and the family was seated in the last row of the plane. And as the trip unfolded, so the story goes, so did their life. Unraveled, maybe a better word. The, this, it became ins- it just, it was insane, because that's what happens when you travel for hours and hours with really young kids on a plane. And their space in the back row was literally turning into a disaster zone. Screaming kids and dirty diapers and crackers and bottles and drool and the whole bit. And people around them couldn't help but take notice. In fact, at one point in the trip, the stewardess came up to the family and said to the man and woman, do you think it would be okay if your kids played outside for a little while? (laughs) All of you know, whether you've had kids or not, all of you know that children take an incredible amount of energy and time. And some things about parenting are just beyond blessing, like they're priceless, they're beyond words, but there are other things that just make you want to pull your hair out, right? Raising kids is messy, and kids are needy, and they're dependent, and they need to be trained, and even long after they've flown out of the nest, they'll return again and again, often, for help, for guidance, for money, for whatever it is. Last week, Pastor Andrew spoke, um, introduced the, the new series that we're doing And as we move towards Christmas through the four weeks of Advent, we've decided that we're going to look at the four titles that were given to Jesus in the um, book of Isaiah. These were years before Jesus was born, given to him by Israel's great prophet Isaiah. Here they are from Isaiah 9-6. Speaking about the coming Messiah, Isaiah says, His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. And this morning, I want to look at that second title, Mighty God. So let me start by asking an obvious question. How does the birth of a baby in a feeding trough surrounded by farm animals to poor and insignificant parents, how does that conjure up for you the image of a mighty God? And the answer is that it doesn't. It really doesn't. From the very beginning, Jesus was not what people expected. Writing about this, James Bryan Smith says, the King of kings and Lord of lords is born a helpless infant to a poor family, lives as a refugee, and grows up in a forgotten town. He's baptized by his cousin, He gathers a group of uneducated and unimportant tradesmen, and moving from village to village, he dines with known sinners and outcasts. The Son of God became a man without reputation, trading in power for powerlessness and ultimately accepting an unjust death with grace and dignity. From the very beginning, Jesus was not who we expected him to be. I mean, just think about it. 
mighty God and poopy diapers. They just don't fit together, do they? They don't, nor do powerful and helpless or weak and mighty. They just don't belong together. And that's the paradox of Jesus. He comes to us in very unexpected ways. But I want to suppose for a minute, just suppose that Jesus was showing us a different kind of mighty, a new kind of mighty. And if that's the case, we could at least ask, what was mighty about the God that was revealed to us in Jesus? There's a story about Queen Victoria. Uh, Queen Victoria lived in Scotland. And against the advice of some in her family, so the story goes, she used to love to go and walk around the grounds, which expanded around her castle. She'd go into the countryside dressed in plain clothes, usually with someone following at a distance for her safety. And one day the queen was walking and somehow she got caught between a flock of sheep and the shepherd that was trying to move them along. And when the young man saw the queen, he yelled ahead at her, get out of the way, you stupid old lady. And the queen smiled and just stepped out of his path. The servant overheard the uh, young man's comments and was infuriated. And he went over and he said, how can you insult the queen like that? To which the shepherd said, well, if she expects to be treated like a queen, she ought to dress like one. That's the tension. That's the tension we feel in this passage. The story captures the same kind of tension that we have when we read about the birth of the baby Jesus and the title, Mighty God. Would you like to imagine if I had the ability to transport you back to the actual site of Jesus' birth? Same time, same place, here we go. Come, would you like to see your God? Come, I'll show you. He's over here, just behind the building. Watch out, that's still fresh, right? And there they are, among the farm animals. Now, I'm sorry, could you just maybe put out of your mind for a sec that we just had a birth here? There, wrapped in swaddling clothes, there. That is God's greatest revelation to humankind, the incarnate Son of God. It just, there's something about the unexpected nature of Jesus and the tension in the moment. It just, it surprises us. Jesus enters the world fragile and dependent, and from his very first moments, our ideas of power and of mightiness get flipped on their head. Jesus arrives on the margin, and he says no to privilege. He says no to position, and it's really upside down, isn't it? But there's an important lesson here, I think, for us. Even before he can speak, Jesus is reminding us that power is not about brute force. Life isn't about showiness and wealth. Real strength is found somewhere else. And there were other kinds of power on display at the time Jesus arrived on the scene. I want you to think, for example, of King Herod. We're told King Herod died a few years after Jesus was born. He was part of a world empire, a dominant military presence. He ruled Palestine for 34 years. He was ambitious, he was ruthless, and he was manipulative. He used everything at his disposal to promote himself and his political influence. He built palaces and hippodromes and amphitheaters and roads. He even built, to the Jews' delight, the brand new temple in Jerusalem. But politically, Herod and Jesus couldn't have been more unalike. 
Eugene Peterson summarizes this perfectly when he says, everywhere you go, even now in Palestine and Israel, you see evidence of Herod's projects. And here's the astonishing thing, Peterson says. Jesus ignored the whole business. He spent his life walking down roads and through towns, dominated by Herod's policies, buildings shaped by Herod's power, and communities at the mercy of Herod's whims. And you know what? He never gave them the time of day. That's because Jesus had his eyes on something much larger, much bigger, and much better. But that's the way he comes. Jesus comes to us in unexpected ways, and he surprises us. In the passage um, on Isaiah 9, 6, from which this title, Mighty God, is, is taken, the, t- the, the term mighty God has political and military overtones. The idea that a warrior God would come fit really well with people's beliefs around the time of Jesus. You've heard this before. When Jesus was born, we know from history there definitely was a hope and an expectation hanging around that God was going to step in, that God was going to liberate his people from oppression. In response to the control of the Romans, for example, there was a popular slogan among Jews that day that said, no king but God. In fact, if you were a typical working person just hanging out, say, in a village like uh, Bethany or a town like Galilee or a city like Capernaum, and somebody came to you and announced the kingdom of God had arrived, the kingdom of God had arrived, you would have thought somehow God was becoming king. And you probably would have thought that would mean insurrection. It would mean revolt. It would mean there would be a political toppling that Rome and the political oppressors of Israel and the empire were going to be uh, pushed over. But in fact, a military insurrection was never Jesus' way. When people come to arrest Jesus, he bluntly asked the chief priests and the elders and the temple guards who had come for him, am I leading a rebellion that you should come at me with swords and clubs? It's a rhetorical question. The answer, of course, is no. Jesus was not leading that kind of rebellion. He was leading a very different kind of rebellion. In the Gospel of John, it's even crisper. Jesus makes it even clearer. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was, my guards would fight so that I wouldn't be arrested. But I'm telling you, my kingdom is not from here. So Jesus' power is cloaked somehow in a deeper understanding of what what brings long-term sustainable change to a nation, to a country, and to the world. He was doing something completely different, and we can't miss that. His kingdom, the kingdom of God, was active in hidden ways, and he would one day come in power, but that power didn't come from the world. So, you you know, I was thinking to myself, well, how successful was this? Was it really successful? How mighty was Jesus' influence anyway? I want to go back to King Herod and think about King Herod in comparison to Jesus, for example. Look at King Herod, his muscle, his clout, and let's compare the legacies of Herod and Jesus. Herod so badly wanted to be a person of influence and power. To help with that, he built a mountain on which to put his burial tomb. It was called the Herodium, and it towered above the desert around it. Herod actually removed another nearby mountain 
and put it on his mountain to make it stand out even more. And this mountain, and the very pinnacle of this new mountain, was Herod's palace, which was breathtakingly beautiful. That's Herod's understanding of what he wanted to be. And in, on that mountain, he also prepared a place for his burial um, and his, uh, for his grave. Herod asked to be buried on the mountain, and long after that, he thought, people will remember me. They'll be impressed with how famous I am. From history, as you keep reading, you get a sense that Herod was more than just a little on the narcissistic spectrum. For example, here, I read this. When Herod sensed he was dying, he ordered widespread lament by the people, ordered people to cry for him. And just to ensure that there would be wailing and lament on the day of his death, he arranged to have a large group of Jewish elders arrested and killed on that day so that it would be crying and mourning. Fortunately, on the day he died, his people refused to follow through on that. But still, on the day of his, of his burial, thousands were ordered to march and form a procession to announce to everyone that a great and powerful king had passed away. Just contrast that with Jesus for a moment. Jesus had no palace. He had very few material possessions, and he grew up in relative poverty. Jesus entered the world in an obscure, unexpected way. He died a gruesome death of a common criminal, leaving nothing behind except his outstretched hands. Yet, who looks to Herod today for inspiration? Who looks to Herod for, to model a life that's well-lived? In the end, who was more effective at changing lives, the kingdom work of Jesus or the kingship of Herod? The cradle of Jesus and the palace of Herod contrast two approaches to life that are still with us today. A mighty king who used his power to build his own reputation, to dominate those around him, and a mighty God who gave away his life and his power in the service of those in need, calling them to become like him. Today, you'll still find Herods among us, flaunting their wealth, bragging about it, putting up monuments to themselves, running their own kingdoms, longing to be the center of everyone's attention. They'll do just about anything to make themselves look good and boost their own agenda. You usually spot them by their lack of character, their desire to be first, and their toxic attitude. Their life is the opposite of the qualities of humility and gentleness that Jesus embodied. So based on this morning, if you were looking for Jesus today, where do you think you would find him? Probably in much less obvious places, among the broken, those whose lives have been written off or ignored, the hopeless, the struggling, the lost, the lonely, consummate sinners. Like the place he was born, Jesus often found, is found today in obscure places off the beaten track, with his eyes set on a different kind of kingdom. And he's ultimately, I would argue, concerned with the kind of people that we are becoming his, in our character. He's not telling us to be concerned with our own political or personal power. And that's because Jesus, as he so often shows us, comes to us in unexpected ways. And he surprises us. A few months ago, I was reading C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce. And C.S. Lewis, for those of you who aren't familiar with the name, is the person who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia series and some other books. 
The Great Divorce is a fantasy, and in it, Lewis shares thoughts on the afterlife. And I don't want to go into the book with great detail this morning, but I just want to mention one person who C.S. Lewis focuses on when he's in heaven, the great Saint Sarah Smith. At one point in the book, C.S. Lewis is an observer, or the, the person in the book is an observer in heaven, and this beautiful scene unfolds, and there's this enormous procession. And out in front of this celebration is a woman who's sitting on a chair, and she's lifted up and being paraded through the streets. And people surround her, and they honor her. And we're told this is the great Sarah Smith. As Lewis tells the story, we find out that Sarah Smith was really nobody in the eyes of the world. No historian would ever write about her. She was an ordinary woman with a boarding house, a woman who cared deeply for people in need. She was deeply loving and generous. She was a woman of compassion and kindness. But in the eyes of the world, Sarah was easily overlooked and forgotten. She didn't have wealth. She didn't have any influence. She didn't have any power. Her name was even ordinary and forgettable, Sarah Smith. But in heaven, this unknown woman is exalted as one of the greatest of the saints. And in this, this little scene, C.S. Lewis, I think, is saying something powerful about the greatness and the mightiness of the kingdom of God. Those who work to become known and celebrated here on earth, they'll get their reward. If you do things and your goal is to get noticed and celebrated here, enjoy it. You have your reward. But Lewis reminds us that the Jesus way is very different. It's those who selflessly and quietly give their lives away. Those are to be the ones who are exalted in heaven as the greatest. And that surprises us, doesn't it? It's unexpected again. But Jesus comes to us in unexpected ways. Just as I wrap up, I want to give you another illustration that I think will pull these three points together. In his book, The Journey, Alistair McGrath reaches back into the days of European explorers to make use of a really helpful illustration. As new lands were being developed and sailors were sailing around the world, these mariners were careful to document their travels. As they journeyed into uncharted waters, the captains of these ships often recorded important details along the way. The sailors kept their secrets in a small book that they called the Rutter, R-U-T-T-E-R. There's a picture of it behind me. Actually, you know, it's interesting what this picture is. This is a picture of the coast in 1604 as somebody was traveling down the coast of Nova Scotia from Canso to Maine. I'm not saying it's all that great, but that, those were his pictures. That's his rudder, his secret journal, so he knew the kind of topography, the outline of the shore. The rudder was basically a little journal of notes and pictures, and the captain kept it um, because he wanted to mark off any dangerous areas, landmarks, so he could find his way again safe places where he could rest along the way. And it was a really powerful tool because if you had this little book, the rudder, you'd be able to avoid obstacles. You'd be able to find rest and find shelter. You'd also be able to find your way back home. So this morning, I want you to think about Jesus' birth and life like this. It's a rudder. Jesus' birth and death, or birth and life is like a rudder. It guides us and it gives us wisdom. Jesus' way of life is a powerful guide to us. It teaches us how to live well. 
We're told the secret to becoming great is to become like Him. His words and His teaching tell us what's important, how to treat others. His warnings nudge us back on track when we're in danger of slipping off course. His simple, gentle way contrasts with the Herods that we meet along the way. As we get to know Jesus, we encounter a Savior who is strong, yet gracious, powerfully humble, and strikingly merciful. So this week, as you go through the week, I want to ask you to try to do something. See if it makes a difference in the way you view yourself and the people around you. Before next Sunday, find a readable translation of the Bible. And go to Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, just those three chapters, and take out a pen or a pencil and mark the Bible up as you read it. Ask yourself questions. Am I becoming more like the person that Jesus is calling me to become? The kind of person that's described in these three chapters? Am I more like a Herod or am I more like a Sarah Smith? How am I doing when it comes to managing my anger? What about areas like honesty or lust? What can I learn about what Jesus says about judging others? I picked Matthew 5, 6, and 7 because they're considered by many to be some of the most profound and powerful words that Jesus ever spoke. One person actually called them the most valuable piece of knowledge that has ever been committed to human beings. It's the deepest, most profound treatment of the kind of person we were meant to be. So I want you to try that as your rudder this week. Look at the life and teachings of Jesus, even just in those three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and see where it leads you. I think if you do that, you'll be challenged and you'll be refreshed, and maybe you'll even be surprised in unexpected ways. Thanks for listening, and consider joining us live on Sundays at 9.15 and 11 a.m. For our address, directions, and any other information, find us online at templebaptist.com. There's no...